0: Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Thursday night, Lord, we just ask that you would take our time together, though we have much history to learn, but Lord, help us to apply this to the Word of God and to our lives today. Be with us now and strengthen us through your Word, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated, and if you need an outline, um, I think there might be a few back there. We are lesson number seven on what the Bible says about wine with application to other intoxicating substances. And uh, we have studied what the Bible says just by way of review because we have so many that this is their first time to be with us during this series. Uh, We've studied what the Bible says. The, The Bible says, and there is no room for alcoholic beverage in the life of a person who calls themselves a Christian, who desires to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We have studied that. We have gone back through and and checked our work. Now, lesson number three was a little different because, and has a great bearing on what we're doing tonight, which is going to be mostly a history lesson and uh I hope to get through the history part quick enough to get to the Bible part at the very end, amen? But the problem was people treated drunkenness as a separate kind of sin. That if we could solve this problem, we would solve all problems. And uh, there's a, a very similar mindset in the minds of many people. Uh, that abortion is the great sin of our age, and if we could just stop that, we would stop everything. And I want to challenge you, it didn't work for prohibition, and it won't work for abortion. Because sin is sin. And the business of the Lord Jesus Christ is to save people from their sins. All of them. Not just certain ones. And that was the great mistake of the prohibition movement. You, you, uh, I, I will tell you, reviewing this, having preached through this series before, uh, I was amazed again just to look at the statistics. What actually happened in this country in a grassroots movement against the use of alcohol. It's amazing. But it failed in so many aspects. But how many of you remember the lesson on societal behavior? In America today, there is still less alcohol consumed than there was in 1918, before the 18th Amendment, Prohibition was passed. We still consume less alcohol, even though the population uh, is much larger, we still consume less alcohol today than we did before Prohibition. It wasn't a total failure, but uh, so many of the parts of it were. And we also studied that, listen, there is, uh, I, uh, those of you that did not get uh, the outline last week, because it wasn't printed, it is printed this week, and uh, ask Andrew or somebody, and we'll get you a, a copy if you want, but the, the problem with alcohol, alcoholic beverage, is it has a higher alcohol content today than it did 50 years ago. Why? Why? The ultimate answer is because people want it. The uh, manufacturing, the business part, the capital uh, uh, rewards uh, part of this economy will cater to what people ask for. And the problem is people want to get drunk faster and easier. And without as much excuse. I only had one! Well, it was 20% alcohol. What did you expect to happen, bright boy? Um, You know, and this is the foolishness that goes on in our world today. If you were to study at all normal channels of American history on prohibition, this is what you learned. Gangsta. And machine guns. And every corner was a speakeasy. And under every house in New York City was an illegal brewery. And and, and we've been over that information many times. Uh, in fact, there's a quote here. Where, where, where is it? Uh, Let me see here. Um... Under, there we go. No, I'll find it. We'll get there in a minute. But what I want to do tonight is give a true and simple history of Prohibition. And I want you to understand something. The origins of Prohibition were in the origins of the founding of this country. Contrary to popular belief, the Revolutionary War was fought, why? Against... Government-sponsored tyranny. You need to understand that the British government had sent hired professional mercenary soldiers and forced them to be housed at individual citizens' expense with no prior permission. There was a knock on the door. If you didn't open the door, they broke it open. They came in, they said there's going to be six soldiers staying in this house with your young daughters, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in the same house. And you had no choice. We call that tyranny. That's what was going on. They were taxing, they were doing all of these things. And listen, from the earliest foundings of this country, the issue of slavery was discussed by the founding fathers. They could not come to an honest conclusion. And you, you will not read a history, a modern history of the United States without this huge chapter on slavery. And then the next chapter is on all of the horrible things that were done to the American Indian. And the next chapter is on all the horrible things America has done everywhere in the world. Could I challenge you that no other nation shed So much blood to resolve the issue of slavery. No other nation in the history of this world shed as much blood as was shed in the Civil War. And the issue was slavery. And it ended in the emancipation of the slaves, but how many of you are aware of the new slave trade that took over shortly afterward and is still going on all over this world today? It's called human trafficking. It's still going on. Slavery is as old as mankind. The idea was that we cannot go back and reinterpret even 200 years ago, colonial America in the light of today. But I want you to understand this, that ever since there were laws in colonial America later under our Constitution, drunkenness has always been a crime in the United States of America. Always. It was one of the things that you were punished by flogging with in the colonial army. General Washington did not tolerate drunkenness. And these were things that were done. And what we have here is point D is that, that brought about the beginning of Prohibition is we have a change in the purpose and direction of the church. See, as Prohibition began to gain momentum, the church began to actually join the prohibition movement and many of its earliest founders were preachers the same way with abolition Uh, many of the earliest abolitionists were preachers. How many of you remember Uncle Tom's Cabin? The story written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. We got a quote in our lesson tonight from Lyman Beecher that was Harriet's brother, a Baptist pastor and abolitionist in Boston He was part of the founding of the earliest prohibition movement. You see, that after the Civil War, the abolitionists took credit for reforming the nation by ending the great sin of slavery. What they didn't take into account was the Civil War had increased the alcohol intake, it had uh, made prostitution a common practice wherever the armies of the, uh, uh, of the Civil War had been and many terrible things they refused to look at because they had won the great victory of abolition. And so they set their sights on the next great sin of society and the church ceased Not all churches, of course, but many churches ceased its primary function as a gospel preaching center bringing souls to Jesus Christ. As the Bible tells us, the individual local church is the body of Christ to reach its area and do the bidding of Christ. It became a political movement. Churches liberalized. It seeped into the seminaries. We have modernism coming in, in the 19-teens, in the 1920s. This was the foundation of what would become the social gospel. And uh, now we have uh, the uh, uh, social justice movement, which has removed even farther from reality and truth anything that could be considered good in our society. You see, look at this quote here. Uh, The first big quote is in italics. This is a quote uh, in a book called The Amazing Story of Repeal. It's by uh, F. Dobbins, and he was quoting Lyman Beecher, the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, the one who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. By the close of 1829... 11 state temperance societies had been formed and there were 1,000 local societies and 100,000 members in 1829. By May of 1831, there were state societies in 19 states, 3,000 local societies which were proprietor uh, to the number of 300,000 members, By the end of 1833, 5,000 societies with more than a million members, and by 1835, the reform had advanced with such momentum that the 8th Annual Report of the American Temperance Society stated that more than 8,000 temperance societies had been formed. Embracing was was, uh, thought more than 1.5 million members. The total population of the United States, according to the census of 1830, was less than 13 million. Over 10% of the population of the entire country were enrolled members in a temperance society. Could you imagine a country like that? Now, look what it says here. In 1837, the 8th Annual Report of the New York City Temperance Society reported a membership of 88,076 out of a total population that year of 290,000. Nearly one-third of all people in the nation's largest city were enrolled members of Temperance Society. You know what? I think New York City was a different place in 1837. How how about you? A little different than it is today. This was the beginnings of the temperance movement. Things changed during the Civil War. Alcohol flowed more freely. A lot of other sins came up because they stopped fighting sin and chose one sin to make their target. You can't fight the devil one sin at a time. You can't serve the Lord by giving up one sin at a time. You must serve the Lord by striving against sin, period. Amen? Well, I mean, this was an incredible thing. And the laxness that came about with the Civil War, once we got slavery solved, now we're going to get rid of alcohol. And let me tell you, the movement took off. Now, this next extended quote, and, and I won't read it all, you can read it at home, is from William Howard Taft, President of the United States, Supreme Court Chief Justice, in 1919, after the the 18th Amendment had been passed, here's what he said. Prohibition is from three groups. The religious people who grew through churches and grassroots meetings till it was a political issue in every election. The prohibitionist party was not made of radical nuts, but good, holy living people. Employers formed the second group whose main concern was making money, which was not possible using drunken workers. We had the industrial revolution. You were no longer driving uh, a, a, a cart and horses. You had machinery. And what happened in, in machinery if you were not careful? It ate you. Uh, my dad was a machinist at Black and & Decker, and he would come home. And, and, of course, we delighted in hearing the horrible stories of people losing fingers and arms and uh, other things. And, and uh, my dad was always very careful to remind us to be careful and, 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 uh, and uh, all of those things. But that was the second group from... They purely economic. The third was another class from all walks of life, Americans in spirit and training, alive to the currents in politics, who resented the political strength and truculence, and the demoralizing and corruption, corrupting influence in councils, legislatures, and even in Congress of the saloon keepers and the liquor dealers' association working together for the perpetuation of their power and unrestraining pursuit of their business. One thing that is lost on our society today is what was called the saloon crowd. Today, there are laws. No one under 20 years old can enter a bar and order a drink. 18 in some places. In those days... The saloon crowd was bringing in 12 and 14 and 16-year-old teenagers and offering them free drinks to awaken the taste and the influence of alcohol in their life. That was the kind of things that was going on. You have to understand something. The lawlessness that is promoted during the quote-unquote warring 20s was actually nothing new. The liquor crowd had always been lawless. Liquor produces drunkenness, which is lawlessness. Alcohol removes the inhibitions to keep and to control yourself, and hence all of the crimes and diseases, etc. This was just part of the movement. And uh, it's interesting here, you can read uh, let me, uh, oh yeah, uh, it says many were fighting against the evils of alcohol in others, but still wanted the right to drink moderately themselves. It was not till after the 18th Amendment was passed that they found they had no more drink. President Taft then said, get over it. He, because he was talking about the, uh, the goodness and things that could come ...from the removal of alcoholic beverage in this country. Here's what he said, the last paragraph on the back of the page here. When the amendment is enforced, as already said, the deprivation will fall most heavily on those recently from other countries... ...where beer and wine and liquor have been, that's supposed to be part of their lives... In the old countries, the consumption may not have been so injurious as it certainly is here. For a time, these people will resent the deprivation. But as they imbibe the American spirit instead of American liquor, as they find their saving increased, and their children learn the duty of American citizenship and American customs, They will find themselves to be part of the community most highly improved by this lawful impairment of their personal liberty. I want you to understand something. William Howard Taft was no prohibitionist. He was not for it, but when it came, he was wise enough and honest enough to realize all of the blessings that it could bring this nation. And that's what that article is quoted for. The culmination of these efforts was the 18th Amendment. That was the prohibition of the sale, of the the use of alcoholic beverage in the United States. That was approved on January 28, 1919. Now, how many of you are familiar with the process of a constitutional amendment? Uh, We have not had one in a very, very long time. It has to be passed by both the Senate and the House. It has to be signed by the President. And then it has to go through the process of being adopted by two-thirds of the state legislatures in uh, these United States in order for it to be certified as an amendment to the Constitution. That is an incredibly difficult prospect to uh, have happen. And yet it did. This was not just a few little people here trying to control the morality of a nation. This was a nation stating the standards of their morality. And by the way, where did they get the idea that alcohol was a bad thing? Well, it all started right here. And then it was reflected in the lawlessness and the wickedness of the liquor crowd, of the saloon keepers, of the manufacturers of alcohol. And it was reflected in the lives of citizens. There's a statistic not in here that in, uh, I think it was 1919, they counted 200,000 indigents in New York City. And 175,000 of their indigency was related to alcohol abuse. That's a scary and terrifying statistic. And so, the Volstead Act was a separate passage of Congress because here was the problem, and we'll touch on this, the 18th Amendment had no penalties attached to it, and no enforcement apparatus. It just simply said that Congress and the state legislature shall make rules regarding the enforcement of this amendment. So what happened? Certain states made certain laws, and so they just went over the state line to a state that didn't have laws and brought the liquor back into the states that did have the laws. And things were passed. Finally, uh, the Jones Act, this is March 2nd, 1929. This is nine years after uh, the 18th Amendment came into effect that it finally became a felony to produce and sell alcohol in these United States. You know what the problem was? Enforcement... Was not there. You make a law, you don't enforce it, what do you get? Lawlessness. If people can get away with it, they're going to. Talk to Bill Clinton. We'll keep moving. All right. The greatest success. Here we go. Let's read this here under point 1B on the back. No one who in 1919 was sufficiently mature to be aware of the intensity of the hatred which the great majority of the American people felt toward toward intoxicating liquor in its every phase and have the slightest doubt that this is what they had commissioned their representatives in Congress to accomplish and they supposed that it was being done. Do you understand that quote? The American people had made this decision. And they had entrusted the carrying out of this decision politically to their government. And they trusted that their government would get it done. That's why Prohibition failed. Can you trust government with anything. It was, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin who said, government is a necessary evil. Um, you see, it all culminated in the election of Herbert Hoover. Now, I want you to look at this. Mr. Hoover was the leader of the dry movement. He was elected with the greatest electoral majority to that point. Forty states, 444 electoral votes to Al Smith's eight states from New York. Guy built the Empire State Building, by the way. Al Smith's eight states and 87 votes. That That is... Beyond landslide proportions. 447 to 87 in the Electoral College. The Senate was 80 senators were in Mr. Hoover's party versus 16 who were opposed to him. That is beyond the supermajority. There was nothing that they could, there was no veto that could not be overridden. In the House, there were 328 to 106. There were more than three representatives in Congress for every one congressman that endorsed alcohol. Now, do do those numbers just kind of befuddle your mind? Here we have a president that was the leader of the prohibition movement. We have a senatorial majority of 80 to 16 in the House, uh, 328 to 106. The electoral votes was 444 to 87. The issue of the election was the enforcement of the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Acts. And here's what it says. That, where is it? Uh, Mr. Hoover was the leader of the dry movement. The people had smo- spoken. Mr. Hoover sat still. You see, the, these next quotations under point three is from a sermon by Harry Emerson Fosdick. How many are familiar with that name? Harry Emerson Fosdick was one of the great atheist preachers in New York City. He pastored uh, Rockefeller's Church, which was Park Avenue Baptist Church, which later became Riverside Church, which is still in uh, functioning today. Mr. Fosdick was a great prohibitionist. He was one of the leaders. And as a preacher, he had a special place. But Mr. Fosdick believed the Bible was a collection of fairy tales, that Jesus Christ was a nice guy, and that this entire idea of sinners who need to be saved was wholly made up of man's imagination to control other men. This guy believed nothing that the Bible believes. He never quoted one Bible verse in proving that prohibition was evil. I mean, uh, prohibition was good and alcohol was evil. Let me read a few quotes to you. They're in in your thing here. Um, Now, this is Mr. Fosdick talking prior to the 1928 election. Look at this second paragraph here. He says, in the first place, we are continually reminded that the present situation is very unsatisfactory. This is all the violence and all the things going on. This is the middle of the Roaring Twenties. The depression had not started yet. Uh, he says, we may well then agree on this. The present situation is highly unsatisfactory. That as bad as the situation is now, it is better than it out of which we were digged. That's not, uh, my spell checker was very poor this time. But what, what Mr. Fosdick was saying is, yes, it's very unsatisfactory. There's too much violence. There's too much lawlessness. But it is ten times better today than it was before the 18th Amendment was passed. This was a man speaking purely from a moralist point of view. And by that we mean someone who believes in morals but refuses to use the authority and the person and the words of God to back it up. Uh, We are not moralists. We want to be moral because we believe that a moral God gave us a moral book called the Bible and we base what we believe upon the words of this book. There's a difference. But even a godless man like Harry Emerson Fosdick understood and despised the liquor crowd, to the point that he was one of Prohibition's greatest uh, speakers. Now, look what it says here in this last one. Oh, yeah, let's, let's get uh, these last two paragraphs here. Lawlessness of Prohibition. This was his statement on that. It was lawless before Prohibition. The liquor crowd has always been lawless. He says you would think bribery was invented by those trying to break Prohibition laws. Uh, Being a little sarcastic there. Here was the issue, and he says, Before Prohibition, 1884, in New York City, the Board of Aldermen, which is now our city council, consisted of 24 men, 12 were saloon keepers, and 4 others controlled by the saloon crowd. 16 out of 24 city council members in 1884 were in the liquor crowd. And you wonder why things were that way in New York City. Now look what it says here. Out of 1,002 Democratic and Republic primaries, and I think what he meant by this is places of election or polling places, we would call them today, 633 were in saloons and 96 additional ones were next door to one. In 1884, 729 polling places out of 102 were either next door or in a saloon. There's not one today in New York City in any place that serves alcohol. Most of them are actually in schools and uh, social clubs. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing. Now, we're going to talk very quickly about the reasons for its failure. The uh, 21st Amendment to the Constitution repealing the 18th was certified December 5th, 1933. Uh, less than nine months after Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office. The problem was, from 1919 until uh, 1920, there was a one-year waiting period built into the amendment before before it became illegal to do that. Now, what do you tell people? It's wrong to sell alcohol, but we're going to wait a year before we enforce anything. It just allowed the liquor crowd to dig in deep and prepare for the effect. It was not a felony to violate any law dealing with alcohol until 1929 when the Jones Act. It was called the Volstead Act. Do you remember the Stamp Act from the Revolution? There there was a reason why that wording was used. It was because they were trying to under, to, to make people feel like they were losing their rights when what we were losing was the influence of the liquor crowd. Verse uh, Point two here. Now, this is quoting Professor Peter Odegaard of the Southern Ohio State University in the year 1930. This was, just, this was during Prohibition. He said, a prominently wet member of Congress that's pro-alcohol once told the writer, that was Professor Odegaard, that the principle upon which the wets base their propaganda, every time a crime is committed, cry prohibition. Every time a girl or boy goes wrong, they shout prohibition. Every time a policeman or politician is accused of corruption, they scream prohibition. As a result, they are gradually building up in the public mind the impression that prohibition is a major cause of the sins of society. This was a college professor in 1930. Uh, would you mind if I just devolved and chased a rabbit here? A prominently anti-Trump member of Congress once told the writer that the principle you get the idea? Every time something goes wrong, they cry Trump. Every time some crime is committed, it's called Trump. That's what's going on today. It's the same thing by the same people. It's time that we wake up and understand what is happening in our country. And this is not a grassroots movement of many, as Prohibition was. This is a group of radical nuts who believe that it is their duty to determine how many ounces in your soft drink, excuse me, And all of these other incredibly unbelievable invasive things, that's why they want to control your health care, that's why they want to uh, run every portion of your life. You see, the movement quit working and they gave over the responsibility to the government because they thought... They had won the war against the liquor crowd. Now, there's only one problem with that. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to try to make a few... I've been trying to make applications here. I hate doing whole history lessons, but we we need to understand something here. What was going on in Prohibition was absolutely good and right for this country. Everything you've heard is basically a lie written by liars who were trying to promote the alcohol and the profits that were attached to it. When Roosevelt became president in 1932, his New Deal government removed all redress from the table. There was nothing, outlets, were, uh, media was completely controlled. And the churches abandoned their responsibility to the government. And when the government lost, they had no courage to keep fighting. Now, true churches of Jesus Christ have always been against alcohol and always will. But the movement died. Verse 18, Matthew 28 says, Then Jesus came and spake unto them, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Could I challenge you tonight something that uh, you know there is no time limit on the Great Commission? There, there is no time frame there. It's until the end of the world. You're still standing on it. Amen? It's still in effect. And the church's job is to evangelize, to teach all nations. And once you get saved, then you ought to get baptized. And you ought to get baptized the Bible way. Is that a big deal? It shouldn't be, but a lot of people it is. Jesus went and found a Baptist preacher and got baptized. So should you. Amen? And uh, the truth of the matter is here. Then comes the third part. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, let me ask you a question. We ask this often here. Point of honesty. How many of you had a problem with all things since Sunday? How many of you have sinned since Sunday? Okay. Okay. Every hand goes up except those that just committed another one, right? Okay, so this teaching process never ends. But the prohibition crowd quit because they thought they had won. You need to understand something. The devil never quits. He has read the Bible. He knows what's going to happen in the end. He knows he's going to be bound hand and foot and confined for a thousand years. He's going to be let go for a little bit and then he goes to the lake of fire forever and ever. The devil knows all this. But he hasn't let up one breath since the Garden of Eden. And he won't until he's eternally confined to the lake of fire. By the way, that's the baptism of fire that John the Baptist talked about. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is in the lake of fire. Holy Spirit is in heaven with God. Amen? It's just that simple. You see, people believe, I've given this example, a friend of mine, I won't give his name, but He believes that we ought to have a constitutional amendment demanding that parents raise their own children. And I sympathize with him. I believe parents ought to raise their own children, no matter how many you have. Amen? Uh, It just ought to be done. But a constitutional amendment didn't solve prohibition, and a constitutional amendment will not solve bad parenting. But this book will. Learning to observe what Jesus said will. Now, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And, and I do hope that you would allow the, the history lesson. Read some of the quotes there. Forgive me for my typing errors. There's just a lot of, a lot of words on that lesson there. And I, I went through it, but uh, not as carefully as I should have. But verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's why the prohibition amendment failed. They were wrestling against flesh and blood. We don't. We wrestle against principalities. and Against powers against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, like the Roosevelt administration. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith he shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, here is the work of the Christian warrior so armed and prepared, praying always with all prayer and supplication. That's not part of the armor. That is the duty of the soldier. Now, look what you're praying for. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, Paul says, listen, we're supposed to be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit under the direction of the Holy Spirit. We're to watch our prayer life with perseverance and supplication for all saints, for those that believe in the name of God, for those that carry the truth of this book called the Bible, and for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's why our ladies get together every Thursday night at 7 o'clock to pray for the missionaries. Because that's what Paul was telling the soldier to do. That's why we have a prayer meeting every Sunday night. You know why? Because that's the work of the soldier. And when do we quit praying? When we see Jesus. That's when we quit praying. Because we won't need to pray anymore. You see... Do not get caught up in political movements. How many of you uh, would admit being old enough to remember the moral majority? Got Ronald Reagan elected the first time, really did. It was the deciding factor in the 1980 election. And I, for one, go on record. I wasn't old enough to vote in 1980, but I voted for him the second time around. Uh, I'll tell you what. I was glad, but did it solve the moral issues of our country? Not in the least. Moral issues of a nation are solved in the church house, not in the White House. It is when God's people who are called by his name, what's it say? Seek my face will humble themselves and pray. And I know I didn't say it all in the right order, but I got the important parts there. It's what we're supposed to do. That's what Paul said to do here. That's what Jesus said to do in the Great Commission. Prohibition, political rightness, never solves moral problems. And we have people screaming, separation of church and state, separation of church and state. Well, nobody believes it like the Baptists do. That is a Baptist distinctive. We are the people who brought that thought process to the world at large. And if you want to study the history, we'll do that on another night. But I want you to understand something. When they say separation of church and state, they say you have no right to tell us the difference between right and wrong. And I say, you're exactly correct, because Jesus has already done it for us. And it's our job to tell you what Jesus said. And all God's people said. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. We ask that you would encourage us in your word to be obedient to your word, to live what the Bible says, and to learn from the mistakes of those who live before us. That we would not falter. That we would not slow down. That we would not take responsibility that you have given to us as Christians and lay it upon the shoulders of the most unworthy politicians. Lord, we ask that you would guide and direct during this time of invitation. And even though this has not been a gospel message, that people would understand that the only way to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, let us live for you in these last days. Before we finish that prayer, we'll just keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed. If you need to come and pray, the altar's open.